everybody. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, Dragonheart is the most beautiful love story ever written between a man and a dragon. (laughs) I have informed my co-hosts that despite the fact that I have eaten breakfast, the probability of me crying during this recording is reduced but not eliminated. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I don't know if the soundtrack to this movie is actually good or if the fact that I watch this movie constantly as a child means I've been conditioned Pavlov's dog style into crying whenever I hear it. I mean, it's a good hook, but I don't know if the rest of the soundtrack is actually memorable. It's Dragonheart, you guys. Dragonheart is a 1996 movie and it's extremely 90s. If you watch Dragonheart, which, by the way, you used to be able to do on Netflix up until, like, a day before recording this, in which case... Yeah, up until last f***ing night. At which point, Netflix summarily removed Dragonheart, as well as, yes, all one, two, three, four sequels, except for the last one, which came out in February. Yes, they're making Dragonheart sequels, and yes, they're modern Dragonheart sequels. They're not very good. No. No, they're not. Am I the only one here that's seen all of them? I think I am. I watched the one with Guy What Play Gandhi. There's the one with Malcolm in the Middle's Big Brother. That's part of the DVD two-pack that I stole from the library. Right, because that one was like a direct-to-VHS. That one's old. And then the third one what had Ben Kingsley in it. That was direct-to-Netflix. Yeah, that's the one where it turns out dragons are from space. Turns out dragons are from space. And then I stopped watching them after that. Then there's the fourth one where the exact same dragon is now voiced by Patrick Stewart, and we try not to talk about it. And then there's the one where it's a different dragon who is Ben Kingsley slash Patrick Stewart's dragon's daughter, who is Helena Botham Carter. Oh, shit. Yeah, there's a girl dragon in one of them. Shit. Yeah. I might have to watch that one. It's fine. (laughs) It was a long weekend. This was one of those cultural Mark Stones that just completely passed me by. Dragonheart? Yeah, I literally saw it for the first time when we were going to record, like, the Friday night before, and then I just rewatched it last night. <gasps> Mackenzie! <laughs> How? I would hesitate to call Dragonheart a cultural touchstone. I wouldn't. I know tons of people who watched it, so I kind of call it that, because everybody I know has seen it but me. It's a cultural touchstone for a very specific kind of child. <laughs> for nerds. And that's the child who is really, really, really particular, is the kind word, about dragon anatomy, and that was me. (laughs) So yeah, Dragonheart is a movie that came out in 1996, which is about, well, as you can tell from our fact, it's a love story between Dennis Quaid and a dragon played by Sean Connery. Also, Dina Meyer is there. You may know her from literally everything. She was in some of the Saw movies. She was in that Birds of Prey TV show that didn't live very long. She's been in everything. Do her wigs get any better over the years? No. Oof. Okay, this is a Dennis Quaid vehicle, first and foremost. (laughs) He was not the first choice. I don't think he was even the second. No, no. You can tell this is like a nerd movie because the Wikipedia page for the production of this movie is exhaustively written. One of the major people they had to read for Bowen, the main character, was this actor, this up-and-coming guy that they decided that he didn't have enough of a big following and he had just finished, like, a big action movie and they wanted, like, a big name. They turned him down. It was this dude named Liam Neeson. (laughs) Oof. 
They wanted to have Liam Neeson be Bowen. Can you imagine the smolder that would have added? Uh, but they were like, no, he, he. we don't want Darkman from Darkman to play <laughs> our dragon slaying knight. So they considered such actors as Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe replace Draco in- instead of Sean Connery. They replace him with Whoopi Goldberg. Oh my god, that would have been really good. Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Patrick Swayze. Eventually, Dennis Quaid accepted the role. <laughs> Dennis Quaid, the Waterworld guy. Dennis Quaid is not even the superior Quaid. <laughs> and oh boy, guys. It shows. Uh, What's really funny is if you love, like, we found this out last night when Annie was looking for uh, Dragonheart on Blu-ray because she was being honest with herself and her feelings. <laughs> and it turns out that when you look it up on Amazon, they actually name drop Dennis Quaid in the URL for SEO purposes. Like, somebody's going to be like, I really need to watch a Dennis Quaid movie, like, right now. And this is in the fucking five-pack, like, five-movie DVD. Dennis Quaid takes casting over Sean Connery and Patrick Stewart. And Helena Botham Carter. Dennis Quaid, though. It should also be said that this movie is directed by a man named Rob Cohen, not one of the Cohen brothers. The th- only thing he had directed before this was a movie called Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which is a different kind of dragon. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different dragon. He also went on to direct a couple of other movies you may know. The first Fast and the Furious movie. Triple <laughs> X. Oh, God. And are you ready for this? The Mummy 3, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. What? You know, the bad one. (laughs) Oh, God. The one Evie's not even in. Uh. Also, my dude produced The Wiz in 1978. Yeah, The Wiz. I don't know what that is. Imagine they decided to do a thoroughly modern version of The Wizard of Oz. It's bad. In 1978. Oh. With very low production values. Oh. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yes. (laughs) I see. He also executive produced Witches of Eastwick, so this dude's oh resume is all over the board. Yeah, it's, it's all over the goddamn place. I like it, Witches of Eastwick. I have it on DVD. Oh, no, sure. Another tidbit from the Wikipedia page, which I just wanted to, to read to you guys. Patrick Reed Johnson, who wrote the story for Dragonheart, first proposed the idea for the film to producer Rafaela De Laurentiis. I'm gonna fuck that name up. I already have. Johnson describes it as the skin game with a dragon in it, or... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Dragon. Oh, God, yeah. The, apparently the actual genesis of this movie was the idea of a dragon and a dragon slayer teaming up to con people, which ends up being about mm, 20% of the real movie. <laughs> yeah, the whole movie is built and hinges around the scene of Dennis Quaid sitting in Sean Connery's scaly fursona's mouth. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> This movie had, like, a super tumultuous production cycle, apparently. Like, the dude who wrote the screenplay for it got really bent up out of shape about Rob Cohen coming in to direct this because he wanted to make it more of, like, a family-friendly movie. And meanwhile, the screenwriter, Charles Edward Pogue, basically decided that it was his baby forever. To the point where (laughs) Annie managed to find a copy of his novelization. And this isn't like someone else adapting a screenplay based on a movie, and by that I mean adapting like not even the shooting script, but the screenplay before they even started shooting. This is Charles Edward Pogue expanding his own screenplay into a book. Which is never good. No. I'll tell you guys what though, the spine for this book, this paperback, is pristine. (laughs) 
Nobody's cracked this. Oh, no. In the middle of this book is a receipt from Walmart for the purchase of this book, as well as a couple of other items from, yes, 1996. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is a perfect copy, and I can't wait to read more of it. <laughs> We're going to have to have a whole follow-up episode where Annie talks about the Dragonheart novelization. We're going to have to. I am already upset. <laughs> First of all, though, Dragonheart. <laughs> I was obsessed with this movie as a child. Oh my gosh. I wore it the VHS, and when my dad cottoned on to how obsessed I was with this movie, he went digging. And back in the day, I don't know if this still happens, probably not, but back in the day when you made a movie and you wanted newspapers to review it in their entertainment section, you'd send their entertainment editor a bunch of swag. Free shit. <gasps> and all that free shit usually just goes into a box if nobody wants it. So my dad went digging around in that box and pulled out a Dragonheart baseball cap, which I wore religiously for like the next 10 years. Gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it finally went missing when my parents sold their house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was obsessed with this movie as a child. Completely obsessed. To the point where years later when I was working at the public library, people would still donate stuff to us, even though all of our acquisitions had started going through like a central company. Everything that got donated to the library just went straight into a box for book sale, and I was allowed to raid that box whenever I wanted, so I did. And one time I pulled out a copy of Dragonheart on DVD, and I just kept that, so now I have it again. Dragonheart is absolutely a movie that if you are a kid who really likes fantasy stuff, or if you're like, you know, one of so many little girls who just decides that instead of being a horse girl, or a dolphin girl, or a unicorn girl, you're a dragon girl. First off, you're probably gay now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Second, you get really upset about dragon anatomy and what does and does not constitute a wyvern. Hey, what's up, Shannon Maynard? Hey, Jordan. Oh, God. <laughs> and you tend to hold up Dragonheart as the golden standard for a dragon that actually has, like, four legs and a skeletal structure that seems like it would largely support large wings that could actually carry the body. It means a lot to you. The main motivation for that was apparently he needed hands to be able to act. It's interesting in that, like, with this dragon design, they didn't actually do a whole lot of mocap because they didn't have that at the time. That did not exist. This was a keyframed dragon. Yes. This is also a CGI dragon that they started doing largely because of the small CGI parts of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. This is kind of a proof of concept. Yeah, you could watch it now and be like, he's all sh weird and shiny. But back then, this was the first CGI character in a live action movie. On the cutting edge, they don't even use that many practical effects. No, this was very impressive back in the day. Which is why the dragon is absent for so much of the movie and is just off screen. Well, they had to save the cool CGI dragon reveal for when it was dramatically appropriate. And by dramatically appropriate, I mean a slapstick sequence where Dennis Quaid gets dragged through the woods. Right, and then you also concentrate most of your budget on making sure the firelight flickers across the scales just right during the most romantic parts of the movie. Yes, exactly. We should actually talk about this f***ing movie, though. Yes. <laughs> I can feel Mackenzie aging. <laughs> so this movie starts in a giant, what we are told is an ancient Roman ruin in the middle of England, where we encounter Dennis Quaid, who in this movie is referred to as Bowen. I'm not saying he's playing this character, simply that he is referred to as Bowen. Yeah, the movie actually starts with like the Universal logo and like that f***ing soundtrack starts coming through. <laughs> and, and I started crying immediately. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> instant, instant tears. Amazing. It's Bowen and some little shit. 
sword fighting in some Roman ruins. That's how this movie starts. The some little shit, for those who want to know, is later going to be played by Remus Lupin. Possibly now. It's the weirdest shit. The bad guy is Remus Lupin after a time skip. Yeah, that does happen. I don't know who's playing him now. Except for the fact that throughout this entire prologue section, this is blatantly the most evil little boy who ever walked the earth. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is important to keep in mind. Like, this is obviously an evil child. This is the omen, but like, if he was kind of a ginger... <laughs> also, apparently Bowen is shirtless during this part in the novelization. In the novelization, Bowen is shirtless and is pleased by the crossing of swords. <laughs> we gotta do that episode about the novelization. We really do. You can tell they shot this very early in the production because Dennis Quaid is attempting an Irish accent. It doesn't stay. And it's not like it's consistent even throughout this scene. But it's kind of there in some takes. Yeah, Dennis Quaid spends most of this movie refusing to have an accent and instead just sort of yelling out his lines as loud as he can. It's something. It is important to note that Dennis Quaid has no accent in this movie and everyone else does except for like two characters. I want to emphasize, we don't mean that he has an American accent. We mean that his performance is all over the goddamn place, that he literally has no accent. Brother Gilbert! There is no distinct, discernible accent that he has. <laughs> Sometimes it's a pirate. There are people in this movie with American accents. Dennis Quaid has no accent. I don't know what this is. Dennis Quaid is basically trying to teach this kid how to sword fight, and the kid is very bad at it, to the point where, like, they do this shtick where Dennis Quaid, like, sits down and drinks some water while not looking at the sword fight happening, and in any other movie, this would be, like, cute and fun and something vaguely, like, aw, they're characters, they get along, but this is just sort of Dennis Quaid making gyrations on a screen. Dennis Quaid heard of establishing character moments, but didn't quite understand the concept. In the middle of this sword fight where he's trying to, like, give this kid lessons about, you know, not showing your back to anything but a corpse or fight with your head and not your heart and whatever, a new dude rides up. His name is Brock. You can be forgiven for not knowing his name. It's not really important or present in much of the film. He is at one point referred to as the apparently inexhaustible Sir Brock, which is, like, my favorite thing. <laughs> The first line that we really hear from this kid is, apropos of nothing, because we haven't seen anything to indicate this, he just shouts the peasants are revolting. And which we get our haha jokey joke first line of the movie, which is Brock saying, they've always been revolting, but today they're rebelling. <laughs> okay. So we learn that this kid is named Einan. He is the prince of this kingdom. And the king is an asshole, and he wants Einan to come see him slaughter peasants for fun. Yeah. And no one's like, uh, that sounds evil, but good thing you, Einan, are pure and beautiful and good and perfect. I love you. And Einan's like, let's go see some randos get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> like, all teenage boys are evil, but this teenage boy is especially evil. <laughs> Except Bowen does not see this. Bowen is like, oh, you're such a perfect, precious cinnamon roll. Ooh, ooh. All my hopes for the future rest on this evil little boy. <laughs> <laughs> Bowen is an Einan stan. Einan did nothing wrong. Hashtag Einan did nothing wrong. <laughs> so they ride to go see this quote unquote battle. And what you need to remember to visualize this movie is this. This movie was made in 1996, well before The Lord of the Rings, which completely changed the way the budget allocated for fantasy combat movies which completely changed the cinematography we expect from them this is just a bunch of dudes in a field 
Yeah, this movie had budget for exactly one peasant village, and they just shoot it from different angles <laughs> to make it look like multiple peasant villages. It's the same village, even when it's not supposed to be the same village. They just sort of rearranged the set pieces. They're watching this battle from far, and Aynan's like, oh my god, I wish I could see you totally murder a dude for fun! <laughs> <laughs> and Bowen's like, oh, you precious pure baby. <laughs> I love you so much. You're so good and kind. Remember to be a good king, not like your father. I'll be a better king! And he means better at murder. Yeah. Yeah, he means better at murder. And he basically says that out loud, and Bowen's like, what? What? I didn't hear that. What? <laughs> and that's when we find out a very important fact about this movie, and it's that it takes place in the year 984 AD. That just comes on screen while the king is trotting on his horse through the village burning shit. <laughs> Do not set a fantasy movie with dragons and references to Arthurian lore at a real point in time, don't do this. As far as I can tell, this is the period of time in which the entirety of England was concerned about Vikings. I looked up a Wikipedia timeline for what happened in the 10th century in England, and most of it was about monarchs I refuse to care about. <laughs> you will not drag me into this, England. My Viscount nemesis is like a teenager now. I hate it. <laughs> But yes, this takes place at a real point in time. Apparently. While other things are happening in the rest of the world. And I hate it. I'm pretty sure the later movies kind of abandon this conceit. Sort of. In the third movie, they suggest that the Romans built a huge wall to keep out the Saxons. Okay. Across the entirety of England. I mean... And there's a metaphor somewhere in there. I mean, Hadrian's Wall did exist... But A, it wasn't very high, and B, it was mostly existed to delineate Roman Britain versus the rest of Britain. Nah, this one was to keep out the Celts who do magic. Okay. The king sets fire to some houses because he's cool like that, and then he gets Which jumped. Is, the peasants are like, oh, there he is, attack him! And they jump out from hiding spots and attack him. Yeah, it turns out the monarch of your nation going out to stand in the middle of a village on fire that he's burning down all by himself with no guards around is actually a bad idea. Yeah, they all just jump the horse because there's more of them than there are of him. Just putting that out there. Just throwing that out there for, like, no reason. No reason in the year of our Lord 2020. Just, you know, some useful information you might want to square away. Mm -hmm. So the dude's getting totally beat up and murdered by a whole bunch of peasants who are sick of his shit. And Ainan is like, oh no, I have to go see my dad. And Bowen, the great knight, is waylaid by a cart. <laughs> yeah, there's a cart in his way, so now he can't go and rescue Ainan from his own stupidity, I guess. Oh no. And what Ainan does is he scrambles in, finds his dad's corpse, now that the rest of the peasants are all like, okay, well, the king's dead, let's kill all of his men. Looks at his dead dad, checks that he's dead, grabs the crown. <laughs> Dead king grabs for the crown. He's not quite dead. He's only mostly dead. He's getting better. And Aiden, in case you weren't quite clear on whether this is an evil little boy, says, Die, it's mine. And wrests the crown out of his grip as his dad dies. And so Aiden runs out with his crown, now a king, and then something entirely improbable happens. <laughs> this, is, this is like a Final Destination movie. <laughs> Someone walks out of a second story platform with a bucket on their head and 
falls off. The bucket has been made into a helmet. The bucket isn't there for no reason. Well, it's here for an important reason, which we'll find out in a moment. So the person with a bucket on their head falls off this platform in like a, whoa, like hilarious trip and fall. Knocks into Einan, knocking Einan into a really strangely pointy spike sitting at the end of this awning. At exactly heart height for Einan. Spears him immediately. Crunches right into his heart, through his ribcage. You hear bone crunch when this happens. So Einan's just, like, stabbed in the heart now. Yeah, he's having a rough time. And then he's looking down at his hand like, how dare you make me bleed my own blood. <laughs> and then looks up. This person pulls the bucket off of their head and, oh, incredibly long hair flowing in the wind and the ashes from the fire of the burning village. It's like, oh no, I'm a girl. And we have this really long moment where we just kind of stare at her as she just sort of like looks impassively at the screen, not feeling a feeling at all. And then in comes Dennis Quaid screaming. <laughs> Every single scene has Dennis Quaid riding into it screaming. <laughs> when Dennis Quaid is not on screen, all of the other characters should be, do you hear Dennis Quaid screaming? <laughs> and Dennis Quaid picks up Aiden, rides off with him. And this girl looks impassively at the screen and then down as we do a focus on some water running through some mud that is now mixed in with some cherry syrup. I guess it's supposed to be blood. That's our battle scene. That's our battle scene, folks. Apparently in the novelization, she actually like grabs Einan's sword and accidentally stabs him through the heart with it. No, I think I like the Final Destination movie angle better. Dennis Quaid takes Einan off to see the queen in what they don't tell us, but I guess is supposed to be the castle. It's fortress-ish. It's mostly just a great big hall. Brock comes in and he's like, my queen, the king's dead. And the queen's like, eh, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> we, we knew it was going to happen eventually, Brock. Let's be honest here. <laughs> then Bowen runs in yelling into the scene, has Einan, and the queen Iceland is like, nope. Oh. Yeah, this tracks too. <laughs> he actually says his father's tyranny brought him to this end. <laughs> and he's like, he's dying. We can't save him. And she turns and she stares at some dragon statuary <laughs> potion stuff. Yeah, she's got like this shelf in her room, stuff full of dragon trinkets. Like it's any given flat surface in my bedroom circa eighth grade. <laughs> And Bowen's like, he's beyond all help. And she looks at all this dragon stuff and goes, not all. And then the soundtrack starts up and I start to cry again. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut to the characters taking Einan on a stretcher up this big rocky mountain path. And Bowen is trying to keep Einan conscious by having him recite what is always referred to in the movie as the old code. And this is important because it sounds good. But the old code is something that doesn't really, it's never really explained... It's implied that this is the code by which Arthur and his knights conducted themselves, which I've read those books. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they conducted themselves by any kind of code. Look, if some guy comes in and dares you to cut off his head, you do it. That's the code. <laughs> Granted, there's nothing in this code that specifically says don't sleep with your king's wife. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of on Arthur, really. But here's the old code as it is recited to us. A knight is sworn to valor. His heart knows only virtue. His blade defends the helpless. His might upholds the weak. His word speaks only truth. His wrath undoes the wicked. I knew that off by heart when I was a kid. 
So we have all this delivered in gasps as Einan sort of mumbles along because he's dying and he's being carried on a stretcher along a rocky mountain path. And there's a lot of dirt and dust and his insides are all bleeding out. He's not having a great time. No. So they drag him into this fucking cave. With like some lava pits, I guess? This is the most elaborate cave set I've ever seen. They use it exactly for one scene. This is why they only had one village. I mean, this thing looks like a friggin' Indiana Jones temple, is how elaborate they have decorated this thing. And most of that is set dressing to keep you from noticing the fact that they are deliberately not showing a dragon at all because it's too expensive, not because it's trying to be dramatic. That's right, it's a dragon cave. Iceland is like, oh, great one, come out, and you hear this thing that feels like it's supposed to be a call and answer of some sort, and we'll hear it reflected later on in the movie, but it seems like almost like a passphrase, which is, are the stars shining tonight? And Iceland says, no, no bright souls glitter in this darkness. It sounds really good, but it means nothing. It means nothing, but we do find out that Aislinn is a Celt, and the Celts were apparently friends with dragons. This doesn't have much historical grounding, but that's fine. And Drago's like, okay, that's cool. You're still, like, married to a dragon murderer, and your son's kind of a dick, so... And she's like, yeah, the husband's dead and the son's dying. Can you do anything about that? And he's like, ah, he's kind of a dick, though. <laughs> And he's like, no, 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 uh, he he said the old code, he's he's a good guy. And Bowen's like, he's a precious cinnamon roll, ooh woo. So the dragon says, oh, give me your sword, Bowen, we're gonna make him swear not to be evil. <laughs> like super duper pinky promise. And Einan's like, yeah, okay, sure, whatevs. And then he stops breathing. And then Bowen starts screaming because Einan's dead for five seconds. <laughs> God, his performance in this scene, like his performance throughout the whole movie is weird, but his performance in this scene specifically is so fucking weird. He is all over the place. He's making so many different acting choices and none of them make sense. He expresses all his feelings through yelling. Sometimes it's grief yelling. Sometimes it's anger yelling. Sometimes it's oh shit a dragon yelling. Drago does the thing that is the important part of this whole movie. It turns out dragons can just like lift a part of the scales on their chest and go directly into their heart cavity. Yeah, they have a special heart compartment. It's like a little glove box with a light in it. And so he takes out half of his heart and recites, Half of my heart to make you whole, its strength to purify your weakness, live and remember your oath. And the soundtrack starts up again and I start crying. <laughs> And then Drago snorts fire at it to cauterize the wound. Only it doesn't look cauterized. It looks healed by several weeks. <laughs> they kind of cart Einan away. And Bowen's like, holy shit, that was amazing. I'm going to do you a solid at some point. And that was the meat cute. Yeah, that was the meat cute. That was the first meat cute. My sword, my service are yours. Which is like any romance novel with a knight in it has that line. <laughs> Ainan is going to live. The procession here takes him back to the fortress, passes the ruins at the beginning of the movie, and Ainan's like, I want that castle. <laughs> Let's do some slavery. Yeah, the Romans built this fortress. I will rebuild it, and mine will be greater. And then Brock's like, yeah, you're going to need a lot of people to actually like do that. And Ainan's like, we have people. <laughs> <laughs> then we smash cut to a quarry full of peasants. Oh, God. Because this movie does not f*** around at any point in, like, giving you time to breathe at all. No foreshadowing that, like, oh, maybe Einan's definitely not going to use this heart for good. No, just smash cut straight to slavery quarry. Or Einan is basically just yelling evil guy things. 
Like, I want no martyrs. That should be a release, not a punishment. Yeah, they bring up the guys who led the rebellion, and Brock picks up a hot poker, and I is like, hey, let's do some evil shit. And then we have the peasant revolt leader yelling, please, no, not my eyes, for like a solid five minutes before Bowen comes in to rescue them. And so Bowen, like, rides in on his horse out of nowhere, slashes down on, like, the chains connecting the slave leader and a couple of guys. And it's like, run, get away from here. And then those three guys run. There's the rest of the quarry here full of people who are enslaved at this point. Also, those three guys definitely show up back in this quarry later with their eyes burned out. So, like, what did Bowen reasonably accomplish here? Yeah, good job, bud. Bowen is like, when did you start being evil? I don't understand. He basically, like, tackles Ainan down from his horse because Ainan's like, no, the king's above the code. I, I've been evil this whole time. Where have you been? And Bowen's <laughs> like, no, I'll hug the evil out of you. I've got the look on this kid's face as Bowen does the I'll hug the evil out of you thing and then storms off to go yell at a dragon. The look on his face is just incredible. <laughs> it's like disgust, confusion. Just a very sullen teenager who does not enjoy the fact this guy is unduly affectionate. He has been told that he has to go across to the other side of the family reunion and sit down with his great aunt and give her a kiss and let her, like, talk to him for 20 minutes. And he doesn't get his Game Boy back until then. (laughs) Go keep your great aunt company. It's also worth mentioning that I've gotten not very far in the novelization, but it is also worth noting at this point that not only is Bowen shirtless at the beginning of the movie, but also, he directly says that Bowen doesn't hug Ainan here. He kisses him. It doesn't say where. <laughs> like, I'll kiss the evil out of you? Okay. This child? I don't know what they're going for here. Transcendent, Annie. Transcendent. Bowen goes back to the dragon cave, and it's the last time we see this scene. I have the lines that he yells written in all caps, because that's the only way that Dennis Quaid speaks. Yeah, Dennis Quaid is just an all caps man. Dragon! I love that boy, and you changed him! (laughs) And he basically just, like, swears revenge on the dragon, because obviously only now has Ainan turned evil. The fun part is that when he says, I will spend the rest of my life hunting you down, his voice cracks on life. That is a key part of Dennis Quaid's performance in this movie, is that his voice will crack at, like, the most dramatic moments, and it's maybe the best thing. (laughs) And not, like, crack like it's full of emotion. Crack like he's a teen boy going through puberty. Yeah. Anyway, it's an enemies to lovers story. Yes. 200,000 words, dragon slayer AU, slow burn, enemies to lovers. Mm-hmm. Dragon So then we basically do a Spongebob-style cut of 12 years later. <laughs> Where we get Brother Gilbert, who's played by the late, great Pete Postlewaite, riding on a donkey named Merlin, composing very bad poetry, Captain. <sighs> I mean, at least the meter is okay, but he does rhyme fool with spiritual. Oof. Oof. It's bad. Don't care for it. He congratulates himself on that slant rhyme, by the way. Yeah, and his donkey is so infuriated by it that it kicks him off. (laughs) And you may be wondering, who the hell is this? What are we doing here? Why has it been 12 years? That's a weirdly specific number. And you won't get answers to any of this because we see a dragon silhouette fly overhead and Bowen enters the scene. With long mullet hair now. (laughs) That's how he spent the last 12 years. Growing that mullet. Oof. It's not a good mullet. There are no good mullets, and this one is particularly bad. 
because we have a dragon, but we don't want you to know that it's the same dragon. The dragon lands on the other side of like a small rise, but it is now completely out of shot. And then Bowen rides into the small rise and somebody throws up some hay and makes some loud scuffle noises. And we hear Dennis Quaid making dragon fighting screams. Because this movie has no budget for anything that is not Sean Connery scaly fursona. I should set his dragon fighting screams as my ringtone. <laughs> Especially the one at the end where it sounds like he's died because God, that's good. <laughs> it's so fucking good. And like, we are here with Brother Gilbert on the other side of the hillock. Brother Gilbert is not interested in actually seeing anything at all. He's just sort of like, ooh, ah, whoa. I feel like somebody should point to a sign that says no face journeys <laughs> while he's doing this. <laughs> but anyway, Dennis Quaid apparently kills the dragon and marches off with a giant tooth? Horn piece? It does appear to be either a tooth or a claw. I think it's a tooth. It seems like a tooth. And he hands off a giant tooth to some nobles that come riding up. And the nobleman who's in charge of these lands is like, your country will pay you an exposure. <laughs> Quaid's like, how about money? I don't bend knee to Einan. And the nobleman, by the way, is played by Jason Isaacs. You may know him from Harry Potter and also everything. <laughs> There's a lot of actors where you're like, I know them from somewhere. And you look them up and you're like, oh, they were in everything. Uh, and Pete Postlewaite's one of them. Dina Meyer's one of them. Jason Isaacs is one of them. But Jason Isaacs is like, oh, you must be foreign. Get the fuck out of here. And funny bit of trivia. Apparently one of Bowen's whole deals that's never explicitly mentioned in the movie is that he did a lot of traveling. He trained in sword fighting in the East. You can, Ooh. If you can hear my finger quotes. And that's the reason his armor looks like it does with the leather studs and everything like that. And also why his sword fighting style is a little more theatrical than the rest of the sword fighting you'll see in this movie. Because it's samurai inspired. But none of that explains his accent, though. None of that explains his accent. <laughs> Brother Gilbert nearby is watching this exchange and he's like, Your honor has a price, sir knight? And Dennis Quaid turns to him and says, It has expenses. Like food and horseshoes. Bowen rides off. Gilbert trots after him and is like, hey, can we hang out? And Bowen's like, the, the road's still free unless Einan's taxed it. And the nobleman is like, say. And then we cut to Jason Isaacs just kind of sliding sideways into frame to talk to Remus Lupin, <laughs> who is adult Einan, and say, a road tax, your highness. A road tax, say. Yeah, only you could have such a good brain under such a bad hat. And it is a very bad hat. And that's where we're introduced to adult Einan, but that's about the whole point of that scene. And we go back to the quarry where, oh, by the way, the girl with red hair is named Kara. She is in this movie now. She's grown up and she's Dina Meyer now. Yep. And she's like, oh, hey, dad, I came to visit you at the camp where you're enslaved. Because apparently Bowen just like slashing your bonds and telling you to run didn't do shit weird yeah it turns out it's actually harder to rescue people from, from situations like that than just doing that are you saying that some kind of larger action might be needed in order to overcome institutionalized problems yes one might think that hmm. Hmm. interesting interesting just you know something we're gonna throw out there that's fine also, Bowen slashing at that guy's chains didn't actually stop him from getting blinded either. No. Because he's been super blinded now. He's super blind. <laughs> oh, God. He's got scarring around his eyes and everything. It's bad. Yeah, it's real bad. Oof. Kara tries to, like, give her dad some water and, like, hands him a mug that is then shot out of her hands by an arrow. And Einan marches up with his bow. Yeah, because apparently target practice is quarry workers. So that's cool. 
Ainan sees Kara and he's like, ooh, hot girl. <sighs> and then starts shooting at her because the method of interacting with women has not evolved past like mm, fifth grade. Except that he can just, you know, murder people now. Legally can murder anyone he wants because he's the king. And Kara's like, so could you maybe leave my dad alone for five seconds on account of how he's old and dying and has worked for you for 12 years? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to kill him. She's like, for God's sake, release him. And Ainan's like, sure, and then shoots him. And then does that whole death is a release, not a punishment thing. He's been holding on to that for 12 years, waiting for that other shoe to drop. This is not a rule of three things. This phrase never shows up again. No, it's just, it, this is the ending in the beginning. Kara weeps over her father's body as Ainan <laughs> rides off, then takes his headband, wraps it around her hand, and just kind of stares at the retreating figure of Ainan, we assume. And kind of looks like she has a feeling. It's it's hard to tell. Good acting is not in necessarily the strength of emotions. Like, you know, otherwise Dennis Quaid would be incredibly good. <laughs> good acting is how an actor moves between emotions. And you can sort of see the change in her emotional state here, where she moves from grief to vengeance. It's some of the better acting in this movie. It's not spectacularly good, but I think Dina Meyer was very young at this point, too. <laughs> The problem is that everything else in terms of how characters are acting in this movie is dialed up to 12. So when yeah. you're trying to do it like a subtle thing, it doesn't quite track. No, it's not what you're trained to observe. <laughs> <laughs> not from everything else. It's not what this movie trains you to see. Just to prove that point, we now go to Bowen riding up to a waterfall while Gilbert is running after him yelling about how he has decided to compose the Ballad of Bowen. Yeah, he starts by wandering after him and hollering, Yoo-hoo! Which is incidentally what my mom texts me when I don't text her back right away. <laughs> and there is actually, like, a good little bit here where it's like, How would you prefer I write this? far away. God, I remember watching the Witcher TV show and being like, Henry Cavill's performance is reminding me of something. I can't figure out what. And then I watched Dragonheart and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's this. It's the same shit. <laughs> yep, it's a stoic and their wacky companion. Oh boy. It's just that this one involves him kissing a dragon. Yeah. Spiritually, if not physically. Right. Gilbert decides to start writing this ballad and perches himself upon some suspiciously dragon-shaped rocks. <laughs> yeah. The fact that dragons can do this is not brought up throughout the rest of this movie. No, it exists solely in this sequence. Gilbert sits on these rocks as Bowen is apparently aware that this is some kind of dragon's lair and is trying to like hunt some kind of a dragon. Well, Gilbert just jabs his quill again and again into the dragon-shaped rock in order to get the ink to run. I don't think quills work like that, but I don't know enough about quills to dispute it. <laughs> the dragon shakes him off, shoves himself back into the cave behind a waterfall, which we see by the image of a tail that we're going to see like twice. The exact same animation. Yeah, they used this shot a couple of times. It was a keyframed dragon. I'm willing to cut them some slack. From beyond the waterfall, something throws out a corpse and yells, okay, but leave me alone though. That's what's left of the last dragon slayer who tangled with me, he says in Sean Connery's incredibly loud voice. <laughs> Do you think Dennis Quaid just is screaming throughout this movie just so he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Sean Connery, who has like the most stage presence of any actor I've ever watched? <laughs> 
is entirely possible. You cannot meet that just through skill alone, especially when you're Dennis Quaid. Sean Connery is not even physically here, and he already has more stage presence than any other actor in this movie. They bicker at each other for a while. Dennis Quaid tries to throw a spear. The dragon breaks and throws it back. Dennis Quaid in the sequence, it's almost like he forgot which one of them was the dragon and whether or not he was in a pirate movie. Because throughout this repartee that these two are developing here, it sounds like Dennis Quaid got ready for this scene by saying, Arr, it's driving me nuts! <laughs> there is definitely a bit of pirate in this scene and no other scene. <laughs> this is what we mean by no accent. <laughs> At some point, the dragon's like, look, I'm sure you're doing this for a big, hefty profit. And he yells back, oh, it's not the profit. It's the pleasure. And Sean Connery's like, oh, I guess we got to do this. And off they go. Perhaps less pleasurable and more costly than you think. Oh, uh, it's flirting. They're flirting. The dragon spends so much time flirting in this movie. It's a lot of flirt. It's Sean Connery. I don't think he can read a line and not flirt. <laughs> Now we reach the part of the movie that is why we wanted to watch this after talking about Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. It's the same shit! Bowen is on his horse. He has like a cable line that he is able to throw up and hitch around the dragon's leg as the dragon is flying away. And then he hitches this around his saddle horn. And if you're wondering which will give first, the rope or the horse, it's neither. It's the saddle strap. Quick horse girl corner here. Okay. This is 984 England. Well, I guess 996 England. Oh no, they did it in 96. <laughs> British saddles don't have saddle horns. Saddle horns are something specifically developed in Mexico and what is a modern day American Southwest by vaqueros specifically for cattle wrangling. And then you've got Bowen and his American ass, lack of an accent, pirate ass voice here in 996 AD with a saddle horn that one has to assume he has developed by himself, not for wrangling cattle but for wrangling dragons. Try not to think about it too much. We have a fun dragon chase scene now. Right. Because Bowen is riding a saddle attached to not a horse. In fact, it is attached to nothing. And he's just dangled off of this dragon as he gets dragged through the woods. I think this is literally the same forest from Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. It might be. Also, like, I swear to God, because he is clutching this saddle between his thighs, that's the only way he's holding on right now. And he's holding on to the saddle horn, which is right between his legs. It looks like he's being dragged directly by his nutsack. That does happen. In the meantime, the dragon drags him through the woods while the dragon is above the tree line. And basically taunts him as he yoikes him away into a bunch of trees. Yeah. This is something that you'll see in a lot of 90s movies. That, like, even the movies that probably shouldn't have it, they all have slapstick and, like, groin shots and characters getting hurt and it's funny. It's weird to look back on as a filmmaking trend and then you realize that 10 or 20 years from now people are going to look back on movies like The Avengers and be like, what the fuck is with all these pop culture references and snarky comebacks? It'll be nice to think that at some point we'll have moved beyond Joss Whedon. Be nice to think about, yeah. So Bowen manages to wedge the saddle between a couple of trees. This cable is tight enough that the dragon doesn't actually break this off. The dragon topples to the ground. Bowen unsheaths his sword and runs up to the dragon. And now we get to a scene that this entire premise hinges around. <laughs> uh, and also the scene that birthed many, many vor fetishes. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a thing. I can, I can, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
But in the meantime, Bowen makes the mistake of standing over the line that is attached to the dragon's leg, and the dragon yanks it up and hits Bowen in the nuts, so that's a thing. Okay, like, I noticed this while I was watching it last night. What happens is that the idea is that it hits Bowen in the nuts, Bowen goes flying, but what they did was instead of, like, pulling up the character or, like, moving the camera in such a way or something where it looked like he, like, went flying as soon as he got his nuts hit, it's like this Monty Python-ass still of Dennis Quaid cross-eyed, and they just sort of drag it up the frame for, like, three <laughs> seconds. It looks the worst. <laughs> And I'm sorry, you trying to tell me Dennis Quaid was above being yoinked as he got hit in the nuts? He almost definitely was not. <laughs> Do you think they just realized they didn't get the shot of him getting yoinked? Oh, you know, maybe that's right. Like, it was deep into editing and they were like, oh no, that shot didn't work. We don't have the footage. Just, just pull, pull the, the frame, frame up. They have a bit of a back and forth here while this is happening. <laughs> the dragon tail whips Bowen at some point right into the welt pits and everybody gets 50 DKP minus. <laughs> That's my one. I get one. You get one. We find out that this is the last dragon alive because the last one that Bowen killed, which the dragon refers to as the scarred one, was the last one besides him. Like, what is your plan? There is a finite amount of dragons. You've built your career <laughs> around this. And eventually, once Bowen gets knocked up on his ass, the dragon unhinges his jaw and tries to eat. Oh, God. Yeah, he straight up unhinges his jaw. He is designed to have like a snake jaw. Yeah, like you actually, it's a prolonged sequence where his jaw like unhinges and then he grabs Bowen and then Bowen sticks his sword up into the roof of the dragon's mouth and oops, it's a stalemate. Because if he bites down, the sword will go up into his brain cavity. But if Bowen puts the sword up into his brain cavity, the dragon bites down. Then they just stay there for <laughs> hours. <laughs> like we, we cut to night. That's how long <laughs> they're there. At this point, it's kind of like that joke when characters fall for a really long time and then they just sort of get bored of screaming and are like, Welp. <laughs> They're just hanging out at this point. <laughs> They're both incredibly bored. Bowen works like a skeleton arm out from between the dragon's teeth and the dragon's like, oh, thank you. That's been there for weeks. He recognizes it as the arm of Sir Eglamore, which is a lovely little mythological thing that we're just going to bring into here and throw away. <laughs> Bowen's like, I can go three days without sleep. And the dragon's like, I can go three weeks. <laughs> and like every time the dragon talks, it like he moves his tongue, which Bowen is standing on. So it cuts back to Bowen just sort of like jiggling around in this giant dragon mouth. It occurs to me that when they put Sean Connery in a VO booth, they had to tell him, okay, now do this line like you've got a knight in your mouth. And you know, we are going to go along this whole sequence just sort of pretending that there are a lot of these sounds that the dragon can make without moving his lips and that also that he has the correct teeth pattern in order to make a lot of these sounds with his tongue against the cleft, but let's not worry about that part. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to have giant robots fight giant kaiju, uh, but then we wouldn't have a movie where giant robots fight giant kaiju. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Exactly. The important thing is that the dragon has four legs and a large wingspan. <laughs> And a barrel chest. Oh, yeah. The dragon's like, okay, I'm bored. How about a truce? Bowen's like, how can I trust you? And and Sean Connery just sounds so, like, offended. Like, I, I give you my word. Yeah. Hey, Sean, do this one like you've got a knight in your mouth and also you're mortally offended. And he's a goddamn professional, so he does. And it's good. And eventually he just shoves Bowen off of his tongue, pins him down with his giant claw, rehinges his jaw, and it's like, I don't want to kill you. I never did. Doki doki. <laughs> 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 
then let's bow him up as soon as he figures out the bow and's not going to try and immediately stab him. And he's like, okay, listen up, dumbass. I have an idea. <laughs> and we don't find out what the idea is, but we're going to. Oh, boy. Brother Gilbert, by the way, is asleep over on the other side of a hill. Brother Gilbert has assumed that Bowen has just killed this dragon because he's going to wake up eventually and they're just going to be gone. He's just gone from the movie for the next little bit. He'll come back, though. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. I'm sure you'll miss Brother Gilbert. Cut to the same village. Hey, guys, remember this village? Get a lot of use out of this village set. This village where the dragon flies over a town, lights a fire in their field. The noble here is caught with his pants down. It's Jason Isaacs again. It's the same guy. Bowen comes riding up all smug on his horse like, hey, I see you've got another dragon problem. How about you pay me in advance this time? And not an exposure. How about you pay me period this time? <laughs> and so we do the dumbest thing possible. Bowen sits up a spear like out of a little like launcher. Launches the spear at the dragon. Who very obviously catches it, tucks it under his arm and goes, oh, ow. Hey, Sean, do this like you're really bad at acting and you're just pretending to have been shot by a spear. And he does it in one take. Later in the movie, he calls this thing the Whacker. I don't know if that has any grounding in historical weaponry, but I love that it's called the Whacker. <laughs> well, I mean, he's got to whack something around this dragon. The dragon catches the spear, tucks it under his armpit, falls down dramatically into what turns out to be an excessively deep river. Yeah, at the last minute, he chucks the spear aside and then just like puts his front paws forward like he's an Olympic diver. It's very good. <laughs> and is completely underneath the water. It turns out he can swim and it's a very deep river. So he just swims away. No one ever looks for the dragon corpse. And then there's a bit where his head emerges from the water and he sees a flock of sheep and very flirtatiously he says, ooh, hello. That's right. He flirts with literally everything in this movie. Hey, Sean, do this one like you really want to eat a bunch of sheep. That's kind of funny. Whatever. We're, we've only got you for four hours. Let's move on. So now we understand what the grift is. We don't need to see a, a montage or anything. We're only going to see the grift like for 20 minutes. But in the meantime, it's time for some moral quandaries. As the dragon and Bowen ride around and the dragon like does these like giddy little acrobatics during this conversation. And it's actually like really, really cute as he talks to Bowen and he's absolutely flirting with him. I think this is dragon flirting body language. It's very good. And like, I really, really like the wing flap noises in this movie. They are designed very well to communicate. This is a very large animal flying around. Yes. And he's flapping all around and the, the wind's picking up. And they do a very good job of making it seem like the CGI dragon is actually, you know, here. Yeah, it's not, you know, Roger Rabbit level of moving the lamp, but it's pretty good. And it turns out that the dragon knows the old code and is mocking Bowen for fleecing peasants. And Bowen's like, no, I don't follow the old code anymore. I'm bitter. I'm bitter and edgy. And Sean Connery dragon's like, sure you are. <laughs> I take you seriously. Knight of the old code. <laughs> oh, if I wanted my conscience pricked, I would have stayed with the priest. <laughs> That's because he wants something else pricked at the moment. <laughs> conversation turns weirdly serious as the dragon admits basically what it comes down to he's like yeah i'd really like to die because everyone i know and love is dead but i'm also afraid of death because i could lose my soul and then bone decides not to touch that at all that's just the end of that scene then they just sort of walk on in silence because that got weird and heavy this is your cute dragon friend he longs for death <laughs> sean connery dragon wants to die <laughs> 
So then we have to remember that Aynan is still in this movie. And we cut back to the castle. Look, guys, it's Ginger Remus Lupin <laughs> participating in the most hyperbolically grimy medieval feast I've perhaps ever seen in a movie. It's also very important that this scene has a dog in it for about five seconds, and he's a big old fluffy dog with big old jowls. Yeah, he's a big old mastiff. You go boy. He's very good. You go boy. He's a good boy. Kara is here. And tries to jump through a window and assassinate Ayn Assassin's Creed style. She almost does it too, except that he spots her in the reflection of like the extremely shiny silver flagon that he's picking up. So it doesn't work. Ayn is horned up about it because the thing that people kept demanding from Harry Potter was seeing Remus Lupin but horny. And unfortunately, if you want that, you get it in Dragonheart. Yeah, unfortunately, Dragonheart's here. Sirius Black is nowhere to be found. Sorry, folks. Yeah. Kara gets captured, dragged away. Queen Iceland is also present at this dinner, and she's like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I've made many mistakes throughout my life. This is just the most recent. We cut to the next day where Ainan just sort of like, I guess, does his morning scaffolding stabbing. Yeah, he's got Kara's knife, and he's just kind of mindlessly stabbing the scaffolding. Like a small child scratching obscenities into their desk at school. <laughs> it's exactly like that. And then he's like, huh. Goes down, wanders into the dungeon where Kara is, who immediately tries to jump on him despite being chained to the wall. So good on ya. And then he's like, hey, remember when you had a bucket on your head and you took it off? And I was like, oh my god, it's a girl. And also you kind of stabbed me through the heart, sort of. Except you just sort of pushed me. But maybe we can pretend that you stabbed me with this dagger in a different version of the script. I owe you, by the way. So that's great. Anyway, that's the end of that scene. Now it's time for the most important scene in the movie. Now it's time for <laughs> the romantic culmination of the movie. <laughs> so Bowen and the dragon are sitting at the edge of a romantic cliff. <laughs> with a lovely overview, Bowen's trying to start a fire and he's having trouble. And the dragon's like just kind of leaning in on his arm and smirking like, you know, I could, I could help you with that. <laughs> I, could, I could do that I, I, I actually this is the kind of a thing I can do and he's like no and then eventually he just closes one nostril and snorts fire which by the way dragons don't breathe fire in this movie yeah interesting note is that when the dragons spit fire it's from their nostrils not from their mouths for whatever reason I'm sure somebody involved in the production design was like how do I make this make sense and that's what they landed on yeah they landed on fire snot yep I don't know if it's the best place to land but well, in the sequel, they have ice loogies. Yeah, that does happen. We sit, they have dinner, the stars come out. Oh, boy. And the dragon sees the shield that Bowen has been carrying around that's pockmarked with what we assume are dragon teeth. And he's like, wow, you must have really hated us. And he's like, I really hated one of you. And the dragon leans in on his elbow like, oh, tell me about this dragon you hated. Did you think he was cute? I bet he was really cute. <laughs> And Bowen's like, all, all I know about him is that he had half a heart, but that was enough to pollute the soul of an innocent boy. And then the dragon, being an idiot, immediately pipes up with, Aiden was no innocent, he polluted the heart! <laughs> and Bowen says, what? And, and the dragon says, what? <laughs> I mean, there's a really good bit where the dragon's shoulder rig is obviously not meant to bend this way. But he kind of scratches the back of his head really awkwardly. It's really adorable, despite the fact that the animation isn't quite there. Oh, yeah. No, it's cute as hell. He's like, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll dragons note that story. It's so cute, though. <laughs> Bowen's like, no, Aiden was a precious cinnamon roll. And the dragon says, he betrayed you just as he betrayed the dragon whose heart he broke. Oof. He has a broken heart. 
He has a broken heart, you guys. Who will fix it? Who will mend his broken heart? Who can heal Sean Connery Dragon's broken heart? <laughs> Who can fix it? Anyway, Bowen calls him Dragon. And then the dragon's like, stop calling me Dragon. He's like, I have a name. You couldn't possibly pronounce it in your tongue. And then Bowen's like, try me. And then he opens his mouth and then like grips his shoulder and winces in pain and like falls back. Falls over screaming. Yeah, it's bad. When I first watched this movie, I was like, wow, you're right. I can't pronounce that. Right? <laughs> But no, that was not his name. That was because in another scene, Ina's just been stabbed in the shoulder by Kara. <laughs> so this scene implies a lot, but nothing that is directly stated. It's unclear exactly how this has happened. But at this point, they are in Ina's room. They are stripped down to their underclothes. Kara has just stabbed him. And Ainan rolls her onto his bed and then climbs off her. Yeah, there's implications. It's unpleasant. Yes. But she did stab him, so there's that. Yeah, so we're gonna just skip to the part where she stabbed him. And then he's like, hey girl, I'm a project. Fix me. You could fix me. <laughs> fix me, girl. Hey girl. Teach me, pity me. Teach me to love. I'll give you anything. I'll give you a throne. And he kisses her and it's super gross. And Carol's like, no thank you. And then he just kind of wanders off. He's off to do evil stuff. And so we have that brief sequence, and now we go back to the important part, which is that it's now a hurt comfort scene. Bowen has put together this gigantic dressing, some kind of great big heat pack or something, I guess. Bowen's like, oh, I'm sorry if I said anything to upset you. And the dragon's like, no, it's not your fault. You're perfect. <laughs> and then Bowen cuddles up to the dragon. As the dragon falls asleep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then we cut briefly over to Kara looking for a way out of Ainan's rooms, and a secret passage opens up, and Aislinn's like, Hey, everybody here sucks. You want to leave? Let's leave. She says, I won't let you suffer the same fate as me, which implies some things about her marriage that I don't like. Yeah. But it was the 10th century. She leads Kara out some sewers and sort of disappears back into the castle as Kara tries to thank her. So Kara is able to leave. Iceland is still here. Kara doesn't leave. And then we go back to the important scene. Which is Draco waking up and being like, have you been watching over me all night? Ooh! And Bowen is like, oh, he's been thinking and looking at the stars. He's like, what have you been thinking about? Oh, many things. Mostly about what to call you. <laughs> We're not playing up how romantic this scene is at all, by the way. This is all text. Yes, this is right here. This all happened. This all happens. The dragon turns to him and says, Oh, you say that as though you reached up and plucked it from the sky. Word for word, this <laughs> shit. It's burned into my fucking brain. <laughs> Which explains so many things. Yeah. It's cats and dragon heart, huh? Uh-huh. And Peter Pan. Yes. These are the three things that you put in there to make a kit. That's the three ingredients that you put into the, the vessel Powerpuff Girls style. <laughs> and then you accidentally mix in some gay. <laughs> and kit was created. <laughs> Bowen points up to the stars. He points out the Draco constellation. We all pretend it looks like a dragon for a second. <laughs> and dragon looks at me and says, so instead of calling me dragon in your tongue, you call me dragon in some other tongue. And he's smiling. And then Bowen gets all bashful and goes, yeah, you're right. It's stupid. And I got said something stupid in front of the cute boy. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> and Draco stops him with his tail from turning away. It's like, no, no, I love it. It's perfect. 
I would be honored to be named after those stars. Jesus. And then he repeats the name a couple of times. Jesus. Jesus. They lean their faces really close to each other when he talks about how honored he is to be named by this boy. Uh, God. God. You know, a little while ago, a coworker of mine asked, so what do you think is the most unintentionally gay movie? And at the time <laughs> I said, I couldn't possibly pick one. And then I rewatched this last night and I texted him and said, I take it back. It's Dragonheart. It's this fucking scene it's just oh no you're right it's silly no no i love it <laughs> it's the gayest shit and like look here's the other part here's something you can tell your co-worker this is the midpoint scene this takes place in the direct center of the movie just by the placement alone the arc of the movie the emotional arc in particular is hinged on this scene of a man and a dragon stargazing together after a hurt comfort sequence where he gives him a name <laughs> Structural-wise, this is the most important emotional scene in the movie. Everything hinges around this. This scene changes everything that happens before and changes it into everything that happens hence. That is what the midpoint scene does, and that is what this does, is this stargazing-ass cuddle scene. So, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't fanfic a scene like this. I mean, you can. I could. I take that as a challenge. <laughs> This is a sequence that should be in a fucking fanfic. This should be something that's not actually in the text of the goddamn movie. <laughs> this is something you write to fix and add in more gay, except the gay's right here. They're so close to kissing. All this is missing is a kiss, or like the dragon puts his big claw on Bowen's hand and then, and then just jerks it away. <laughs> and then they fucked. No, that's in Shrek. Anyway, Kara's back in the movie. Yeah, hey everybody, it's Kara. We like Kara. <laughs> we like Kara. Remember how this movie has a plot beyond a dragon and a man kissing? Yeah, hey, remember this extraordinarily exhausted lesbian? <laughs> Kara is wandering around her home village, because it's the same village, trying to raise a rebellion, and they throw cabbage at her. Perfectly good cabbage. It's perfectly good cabbage, and they're just throwing it at her. And meanwhile, Bowen rides up and he's like, ha, stupid lady. And then I think he breaks a watermelon. Breaks a watermelon on part of his saddle. But probably a historically inaccurate part of his saddle. <laughs> and then Kara shoves the rest of the watermelon into his face. Guys, where'd they get a watermelon? I just, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to rebel because they've been beaten down and like they've already been subjugated and lost friends and family and eyes. Uh, yeah, eyes in, in the case of Hugh, who is by turns called Hugh and Huey throughout the entire movie. It's spelled H-E-W-E. Apparently they did not have a pronunciation guide on set. He's the guy with the eye patch. Bowen is here in this village, which can only mean one thing. <laughs> and what it means is Sean Connery yelling, ready or not, here I come, it's Draco. Oh boy. It's a bad read. I mean, Sean Connery does not give bad reads. This is a bad line. Hey, Sean, do this one like you're a 70s children's show host. <laughs> well, that wasn't very good. Whatever, we've only got you for three more hours. <laughs> Bowen tries to strong arm the village into giving him money, but they're super poor. So he's like, I hear dragons are partial to main sacrifices. <laughs> and Huey's got three daughters and he's like, no. And then they all look at Kara and she's like, ah, shit. <laughs> And, like, they drag her off and she's like, I'm from here. <laughs> you know me. She's, like, begging for her life the entire time she's strapped to this, like, stake 
tied to a fucking hay cart or whatever as they drag her up to get sacrificed to the dragon bowen meanwhile has gone up to talk to draco <laughs> and is like i need you to eat this girl for me and draco's like what <laughs> you want me to do what Draco's like what am i supposed to do with her eat her Ugh. <laughs> bowen's like you ate sir eglamore Draco says one of my favorite lines in this movie, which is, I merely chewed in self-defense. I never swallowed. You heard it here first. Draco doesn't swallow. <laughs> so Draco's eventually like, oh, fine. They're arguing like an old married couple. And Draco goes off to steal this fucking girl. Yeah, he just flies up, grabs the cart in his claws, and just kind of flies off with the whole thing. What seems to be hours later, Bowen finally rides up to that waterfall set again. Where Draco is singing to Kara. And flirting with her a lot. I'm not sure it's flirting so much as like, you know when you're hanging out with like a really old queen who lives in this really awesome rent-controlled apartment <laughs> and he just like is constantly talking, like name-dropping all the celebrities he knows and all the extraordinarily eventful life he's led. And then the partner he's had for the last 50 years finally gets home from going on errands or whatever. And it's like, is this what you've been doing the whole time? <laughs> That's what this scene is. <laughs> I mean, I was going to talk about a bisexual dragon, but this works too. <laughs> That's just the vibe I got from this scene. Bisexual dragon is also valid. <laughs> These are all fair. So he's like, oh, dragons love to sing when we're happy. And we never attack anybody unprovoked. And Kara's like, wait, why'd you attack the village then? And he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> fuck the village. And then Bowen rides up like, yeah, you remember the village? And then they start arguing like an old married couple. Like, literally, Bowen is like, where have you been? I was worried to death. I don't know if you're coming back, when you're coming back. You were worried about me? And this is all happening while Kara, like, has a dagger and she's trying to, like, fend off Bowen to let Draco get away. <laughs> it's very adorable. Looks almost exactly like Lilu with a gun or something. <laughs> Oh my god, this movie would be so much shorter if Kara had a gun. <laughs> <laughs> then it could just be the romance part. <laughs> Bowen turns around after splashing his face with water to try and, you know, diffuse the argument that he's about to have with his boyfriend. And Draco has disappeared into the waterfall. And you hear Draco being like, hold up, he's coming. And who's coming? But Einan rides up with some cronies and he's like, hey, you got my girl there. <laughs> I do really like the bit yes. where Kara has a knife out and is pointing it at Aynan. Aynan's like, I see you have this girl I lost. And Bowen looks back at her and then back at Aynan and goes, I think she wants to stay lost. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, like, Kara is doing some really good acting here. Like, she's got the dagger pointing at him. is glaring directly at Aynan. And when Bowen looks back at her, she's just, like, shaking her head. I like the mechanics of this scene. I like how Bowen isn't necessarily asserting a competing ownership over Kara. He's just being like i think this girl wants to be left alone you should leave her alone mm -hmm. it's definitely that whole guy steps in at the bar to keep the phobe from bashing your head in type situation absolutely Ainan dismounts unsheets the sword and is like all right time for us to fight and honestly dennis quaid does what is probably some of the better acting he does in this movie because it might just be because the sun is in his eyes <laughs> but 
he looks at Aynan with his sword being clearly evil. And the way Bowen's face works here is that he just looks like his heart is breaking all over again. Yeah, it could just be the sun in his eyes. It might just be the sun in his eyes. Honestly, there's been a lot of yelling instead of reading lines in this movie so far. So my standards might just be low. The first couple of minutes of a movie teaches you how to watch the movie. So we're just conditioned <laughs> at this point. And then we get a cool sword fight. And I actually do kind of like the sword fight. Yeah, like, the sword fight is a little slowed down because they are both wading about, like, knee-deep in running water. It's showy, especially Bowen's sword fighting style is pretty showy. You know, it's stage fighting, so the goal is to hit the other person's sword as hard as possible. But taking those two things into account, it's a sword fight that kind of rings true in terms of, like, the style of it. Especially the bit where Bowen's like, only turn your back to a corpse. Hear that, Geralt of Rivia? (laughs) Stop doing pirouettes! (laughs) It feels very much like the difference between, like, the lightsaber fights in the original Star Wars movies versus the lightsaber fights by the time you get to, like, episode three. Oof. The 20-minute lightsaber fight. Like, anyone wanted that. <laughs> Bone and Aynan had this whole argument over the course of the sword fight where Aynan is finally like, No, I never believed in the old code. I've been clearly evil this entire time. This sword fight's pulling double duty, which I love in a combat scene of both them fighting and also Bowen coming to terms with the fact that, oh, this little boy's been evil this whole time. It's like that Bruce Lee line. What you need is emotional content. Honestly, most sword fights, especially ones that aren't just like the climax fight in a movie, should be pulling some kind of emotional double duty as well. That's the economy of language. That's using what's clearly on screen to mirror an emotional arc that you can't really look at with your eyes. As opposed to just being like, oh, we need an action set piece in this movie to keep people entertained. Exactly. Einan stabs Bone in the shoulder. He laughs about it. Bone is clearly beaten and he walks away, then makes to throw a dagger right at Bowen's heart. And Draco comes in to rescue his boyfriend and also scare the piss out of Einan. <laughs> yeah, he leaps out of the cave, roars at Einan, then like leans up, pulls the scales over his chest cavity and you can hear his heart beating and Einan is freaked out and leaves. You can very clearly see the scar where, like, he cut his own heart in half to give part of it to Aynan. Mm. And Aynan's like, oh, fuck! And he gets the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) And meanwhile, Bowen is just like, I had everything under control! His voice cracks again. It's very good. (laughs) (laughs) Because he wants to save face in front of his boyfriend. We wander back to this part of the movie that's about rebellion again. Kara's like, you know, I once knew a knight who stood up to an evil king to save a man from blinding. And it's not really clear at this point if anyone in this movie has facial recognition or if she's trying to be subtle. <laughs> I think she's trying to be subtle and he is not. Because <laughs> Bowen's like, oh, that guy's dead. Definitely not me. Dead. Kara plays along. She's like, oh, that's too bad. The world could use more knights like him. And then we get to a village. It's a pig village, and you can tell because of all the pigs around. It's the same village, but they just put a lot of pigs in it. A lot of pigs. A lot of pigs. Remember the pigs. Yes. This rearranged village that is a different village from the other village. They're pulling together some coin, probably the last they have, to pay Bowen to kill Draco. And then Kara marches in like, he's a fake! And then Brother Gilbert returns to the movie. (laughs) Brother Gilbert makes his triumphant return to the movie, (laughs) declaring that this man is the finest dragon slayer he's ever met. Because he's, he's seen him personally slay almost two dragons. <laughs> Kara's like, no, no, they're in cahoots. And then everybody laughs at her because she's a lady and she's saying words. 
And also saying he's in league with the dragon is like, if you have not been watching the movie up to this point, is a patently ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> so they set up the whacker and everything goes off mostly without a hitch. It launches, Draco catches it, tucks it under his arm, falls down, does a dive into the river and hits his head on the mud. The river is about three feet deep. Neither of them bothered to check that the river was deep enough for Draco to do his thing. And instead he just lands on his head, goes oof, and falls over. There's a point where like Gilbert's looking like, oh my god, you really killed him. You're so good. He's even bigger than the last one. And <laughs> that is great. That's actually this great line reader. He's like, actually, he's about the same size. He's just staring dead ahead, but you can see him, his eyes sort of like briefly cut to Brother Gilbert and then back <laughs> as he's contemplating whether he wants to say anything. <laughs> it's actually, it's pretty good. And then the village, the villagers, the villagers full of pigs, villagers and all of their pigs, look at the dragon, start saying, meat. <laughs> oh, meat. Meat. And start running towards Draco so they can eat him. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. Past all the pigs. Well, the pigs belong to the king. They can't eat the pigs. They can eat the pigs. Hey, folks, eat the pigs. Draco is like, oh, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Draco doesn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> like, staggers through the mud, eventually gets enough momentum to take off. And then the villagers turn back to Bowen, Kara, and Gilbert. And it gets weird. And they decide collectively, well, why don't we just do a cannibalism? <laughs> This is a logical conclusion to our bullshit. You know, shove the pigs out of the way. We're going to eat these people, I guess. Apparently this whole thing with the pigs was actually something that like the screenwriter was really, really mad about because he said that was like emblematic of basically the director shoving a lot of his great ideas aside and like doing things that didn't make any sense or like removing sequences that he thought actually made sure that this movie hung together better than it did. There's actually like a quote in the Wikipedia page that's like, critical elements were missing, things were replaced, and there was all this silly stuff, like this village that's surrounded by 10 million pigs and all the people are starving and yelling out, we're starving, we need meat, let's kill the dragon, but they're surrounded by pigs. <laughs> so yes, the pig scene is a point of contention. Okay. I will point out that under feudalism, they can't eat the pigs. Yeah, you say that, but also they could just eat the pigs. They could just eat the pigs. Hey, folks, eat the pigs. Eat the pigs. Eat the pigs, folks. Bowen, Karen, Gilbert end up doing an escape all on the back of the same horse. Bowen throws back the bag of gold. They end up getting surrounded by the villagers while Draco grabs the whole horse. <laughs> the whole ass horse. With three people on it. And they just fly out. And then you can see where the script clearly started to fall apart because there's a lot of exposition delivered here. And like the major decision made in terms of like whether the rebellion's going to happen happens in voiceover during the sequence of Draco flying. Like they clearly had to ADR it in. Because where does Draco go flying off at this point for some reason? Why? Just to Avalon? You know, Avalon, that place you can just fly to. Avalon, the mythological Avalon. You know, the Hidden Isle, surrounded by mist. And the fact that it is Avalon is very clumsily revealed, again, in voiceover while we're watching Draco fly. Like, clearly they just forgot to get this footage. Or, <laughs> or something. Or they didn't trust the audience to figure out that they were on Avalon. Well, why would they be on Avalon? At this point, we have completely dumped any reference to Arthurian mythos, aside from Gilbert saying that he's looking for Avalon, but there's no reason that they should just go to Avalon. It's not important to the plot. The back half of this movie's a fucking mess. <laughs> the whole movie hinged around, one, a dude in a dragon's mouth, two, a hurt comfort scene where they stargazed. 
And everything else here is just kind of set dressing. Yeah, so they go to Avalon. <laughs> and Gilbert's like, oh my god, it's Avalon. How convenient. Draco just kind of murmurs to himself about virtues. Like truth. Or something. And Bowen's like, no, we're not doing a rebellion. You're not getting me to lead a rebellion. Not no way, not no how. Cut to. <laughs> not quite yet. It is almost that abrupt. And then Draco decides to do some world building. Draco tells the origin story of the dragons. It's basically like every fantasy novel that you wrote at 14 years old, where it's like, no, the dragons are actually good and kind and wonderful and protectors of humanity. That's all here. That's what this is. And also dragons, for some reason, decide to look at these horrible little monkey creatures and be like, let's hinge our entire ability to get into dragon heaven around that one. So yeah, Draco wanted to get into dragon heaven. So he's like, I'm going to give my heart to this evil little boy to turn him good. And that will secure my place in dragon heaven. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out. That whole scene way early on where Draco's like, I would like to die, but I'm afraid of losing my soul. It turns out it's kind of an Egyptian devourer of souls thing, where if you don't go to dragon heaven, your soul is just consigned to oblivion. Yeah. So there's no afterlife. It's just nothing. Mm -hmm. And Draco is existentially terrified. Yes. But he's going to get over it and lead this rebellion. He will go with Kara and Brother Gilbert to lead a revolt against Aiden. And Bowen, who is feeling a little bitter... And also does not want to lead a rebellion, just kind of storms off. Yeah, this is the point where Bowen actually realizes that Draco is in fact the dragon they gave Ian in his heart because he is a dummy, I guess. But he did come to that emotional conclusion about Ian a couple of scenes ago. Yeah. So he isn't angry at Draco. He just has actually has a pretty good line where he says, Dreams die hard and you hold them in your hands long after they've crumbled to dust, which is, that's a pretty raw f***ing line. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that you write on your notebook on your trapper keeper in middle school. <laughs> and then Draco's like, all right, Kara, let's do us a rebellion. And Bowen's like, nah. Bowen's like, yeah, I'm going to go. Unfortunately, it's Avalon. It's an island. So there's not really anywhere to go. <laughs> he can't go anywhere. He just ends up huddling under like an eve in a rainstorm. And then he starts hearing fucking ghosts. Yeah. So he wanders out to go see the ghosts that he's hearing because they're reciting the old code. And he wanders up to some standing stones they were hanging around in earlier and the light changes and shines on a relief that I guess we're supposed to intuit is like Arthur's tomb or something? Something like that. And I will admit that the emotional turnaround on this is very fast. With scene one, Bowen says he doesn't want to lead a rebellion. Scene two, Bowen decides he's going to lead a rebellion. <laughs> it's very abrupt. It's rather clumsy. But this scene in and of itself does work for me. Yes. I do like it. <laughs> Yeah, because what it is is like these ghosts of Knights Past, of Knights of the Round Table, I guess. I guess they're all buried here now. Whatever, don't worry about it. They all basically recite the old code and Bone recites it back at them in the same way that he recited it to Einan to have Einan repeat it to him. And he like gets down on his knees and he shouts it out over the pounding rain, over the wind and everything. And it's like emotionally it's good if you take it out of context and look at it for more than five seconds it falls apart completely but in the moment if you're willing <laughs> to buy into it it works and the soundtrack starts up and i start crying again exactly after this is over the light fades and draco comes over and like stretches his wing over bowen's head to protect him from the rain <laughs> and they don't any say anything they just gaze into each other's eyes <laughs> because they're married so we go back to the village where Kara and Gilbert are trying to do the whole let's do a rebellion thing again. 
And Hugh is like, no, I still don't have an eye. I still have a family. Nothing has changed. Then Bowen's like, let me shoot an arrow at you and we'll do a rebellion. And then there's, this, there's a scene that like, it's they do the movie poster. Yeah. They do the DVD cover. In, in a completely different light. Which is Bowen rides up onto the hill and as his horse rears, Draco, who has probably been waiting behind that hill this whole time to do this <laughs> dramatic ass reveal, leaps into the air and flies into the sky. And it's the movie poster. <laughs> It's the Free Willy poster, but with a dragon. It's a thing that happens. And that's the end of that scene. And it's just, we cut to, I guess we're doing a rebellion. Yeah, that was it. That was all we needed. We needed a movie poster. That was all the persuasion we needed. To be fair, if someone was trying to get me to overthrow the government and said, we have a dragon, I'd probably go with it. I'd join up just on the merits of we have a dragon. And maybe can I touch it snoot? Yeah. Anyway, we do something that should be a training montage, but it's not. It's just like two isolated training scenes that feel like they belong in the middle of a montage. We find out that Brother Gilbert is like a savant when it comes to firing arrows at stuff. He's like really good at archery. He fires two arrows. One goes into a dummy's head. The other goes into the dummy's dick. Bowen's like, okay, you're going to be doing that throughout the entire battle, please. And then Kara learns how to fight with a hatchet. And there's this scene where Bowen corrects her stance from behind and like holds her hand and like teaches her a stroke. And like in any other story, this would be a romantic tension moment. And I think it's trying to sell it like it's one, but they have zero romantic chemistry. Yeah, this is very clearly a lesbian and a guy who's in love with a dragon. So, right. So they're just sort of physically close next to each other for a second. It's more like a coach type situation more than anything else. Right. Apparently, like in the earlier version of the screenplay, uh, there was much more of a romantic arc between Kara and Bowen. But apparently the director, one of the things that the screenwriter was mad about was that the director cut some of the romantic scenes, like the overtly romantic scenes between Bowen and Kara, because he wanted Kara to be more of a character who swung axes and killed dudes. I can get behind that, honestly. Right. I feel like that was actually a good choice. I'm not sad about that. That was a very good decision that was made. Because the rest of this movie is Kara swinging axes and killing dudes. It's very good. I like it a lot. You know, Kara spent a lot of this movie getting her hair grabbed and, like, had a knife pressed to her throat. And, well, that, that is going to keep happening here. But she also gets to kill a bunch of dudes with axes. Multiple axes. Like, she'll carry two at once. It's excellent. And then she gets a big axe. Yeah, and then she gets a very big axe, and it's very good. It's really good. Uh, she's an axe lesbian. Yes. So. Although she is dual wielding, so she might be bi. Well, I mean, you know, you get battle axe bi. It's a thing. Yeah. While all this is happening, Brock, you remember Brock. The best thing about this scene is that I was watching this movie pretty late at night. By this point in the night, I was getting a little loopy <laughs> because it's very hot in my apartment. Brock's into falconry, like a whole bunch. He's always got a bird on him. So when he throws the bird, he says something. And I know logically that what he said was eat because that was what the subtitle said. But when he threw that bird, my brain immediately said, yeet. He throws a bird and says, yeet. He yeets a bird. Brock just yeets this bird. <laughs> he just yeets the bird into the air. He just yeets the bird into the air. Goes over a hill and looks down and sees, oh no, the village has been turned into a war camp and also a dragon's just hanging out there now. <laughs> the dragon roars and blows fire into the air. Just, you know, cuz. I don't think he knows Brock is there. Brock basically just, like, walks out of his house and turns to the right. Because all of this has been happening and, like, he has not noticed this at all. And then Brock is like, ah, oh, fuck. And he rides off. 
Cut to Ainan and some of his other nobles trying to plan, like, how to deal with this rebellion. And they're like, oh, whatever, it's a bunch of peasants. And Ainan's like, a bunch of peasants with a dragon! <laughs> yeah, Ainan does have a very good point. Also, he's concerned about people underestimating Bowen, but I'd, I'd be more concerned about the dragon. <laughs> and it turns out Iceland, his mother, is also concerned about the dragon because, hey, hon, I got you Prezi, it's five dragon slayers. Five weird Scandinavian guys in winged helmets and dragon paraphernalia, I guess. I got you some Skyrims. <laughs> You're like a kid. You like Skyrim, right? Got you a Skyrim five times. Here's some Skyrims. So we cut back to the town where Bone and Draco go for a romantic stroll at sunset to talk about their future together. I'm not making this up. That's literally what happens. That's not a joke. They literally go for a romantic stroll at sunset to talk about their future. Draco's like, you know, Bowen, down there you have a life and hope and courage and everything you need. Now, so do I. He says, gazing lovingly at Bowen. And Bowen rests his arms on Draco's shoulder. Because they're married! Because <laughs> they're in love! They are each other's true loves! <laughs> I love how I can hear you hitting your desk. <laughs> it's important! <laughs> Now we have a big fight sequence. A lot. It's not great. What I do like about this, this is very clearly like, okay, Robin Hood King of Thieves came out in 1991, five years before this. Yeah. A lot of this is just very clearly Robin Hood King of Thieves. Oh, 100 But you know how I mentioned in our Snow White and the Huntsman episode how much I fucking hate battle scenes that are just like big group of people runs at other big group of people across a fucking field? Mm-hmm. Like that Infinity War bullshit? Mm -hmm. Well, this one rightfully points out that as long as the nobles hang out in their castle, they're probably going to be fine. There's nothing the peasants can do. It's not like they have siege equipment. And then the dragon comes out and flushes them out of the castle, which is a very good tactical use of a dragon. Not to mention, after they flush them out of the castle, they actually retreat into the woods where they actually have stuff set up. They actually have a tactical advantage. They have a plan here. They have pikes, which is very good against knights on horseback. Mm -hmm. It's a whole thing because... Because, again, this is before the Lord of the Rings came out and we just decided to have two people running at each other across a big field. Also, Bowen has a new shield instead of with all the dragon teeth. It has his boyfriend's face on it. Yeah, it's very good. It looks like it's made of tinfoil, but it's very good. We have to assume that maybe it's just, like, covered wood because there's a big gold dragon on it and Uncle ain't gonna protect you for shit. But the important thing is that it has his boyfriend's face on it and he probably kisses it for good luck. <laughs> He just wants to practice kissing. Boyfriend. Anyway, yeah, we get to watch some guerrilla warfare for a bit. There is definitely some, like, wacky hijink stuff, especially with Brother Gilbert, who eventually figures out that he can get over his moral compunction to do violence by reciting ironic Bible passages, like, turn the other cheek and then he shoots a dude in the ass. Or pride goeth before a fall before he activates a booby trap that knocks somebody off their horse. Ainan ends up calling a retreat. And, oh, by the way, we also see Kara, like, killing a bunch of dudes with axes, and it's real good. whole lot of dudes, and she ends up in, like, a back-to-back -back badasses scene with Bowen on the battlefield. Kind of good. Yeah. It's enjoyable watching her kill dudes. And then Aiden's like, dude, I gotta get the fuck out of here. Bowen shouts up to Gilbert to try and shoot him, and we do this thing where Gilbert really struggles with this, of saying, thou shalt not kill, but he does actually fire. And his aim strikes true, hits Aiden right in the heart. Ish. Right in the chest at the very least. And then it's a decent shot where we immediately see Draco clutch at his chest and fall. Right into the castle, which he is right over. Yeah, falls out of the fucking sky. And we have this huge close-up on Bowen where he is stricken because his true love got hurt. And Ainan sort of slowly pulls out the arrow, stares at it. It's like, wait, fuck. <laughs> wait, fuck. 
Dragon Slayers. <laughs> I have people in there specifically made to kill dragons. <laughs> Goes dashing back to the castle. Slapping his horse on either side to just make it go pell-mell. With the arrow that he was shot in the chest with, which is, which is pretty metal. Pretty freaking metal. Finally gets there as they have chained Draco down. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I want it alive. <laughs> Don't kill the dragon, please. And they're like, oh. And the dragon slayers are like, wait, did you hire dragon catchers or dragon slayers? Because I'm pretty sure we're dragon slayers, you dumb fuck. Cut back to the woods where Bone is like, I go to save my boyfriend. Who's coming with me? And it's nobody except for Kara and Brother Gilbert. Everybody else is like, mm, not our fight, though. <laughs> you want us to do what? <laughs> so you can what? We go to the castle at night where Draco is chained up in basically a courtyard. We see the dragon slayers are keeping watch. One of them finds Queen Iceland who approaches, bows to her, and then she freaking stabs him. Yeah, she shanks a motherfucker. It's good. It's real good. He just goes down instantly. She approaches Draco and they do that like, are the stars shining tonight thing? Because he can't lift his head to see the stars. No. He's too chained up. Also, she's definitely here to kill him. Yep. And he's like, you're definitely here to kill me. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, that's for the best. And she says, brightly, my lord, the stars are shining brightly. And then says, forgive me, as she's about to go in for an axe swing to kill him. And, oh, look, it's Einan. Einan's here, you guys. <sighs> and Einan stops her and he's like, you got dragon slayers because they would kill me. And she just straight up, this is the most metal thing, like this is the rawest thing Aislinn ever says. I brought them to correct a mistake I made when I saved a creature not worth saving. She says, talking about her son while looking that guy directly in the eye. Holy shit. That's metal as fuck. Where has this woman been this whole movie? She's awesome. Anyway, Einan says, how unmotherly of you, which fair. And then he immediately has her walk off into a shadowed corridor, at which point he just straight up stabs her. Yeah, and the whole time Draco is roaring in anger because he can't do anything about it or to save Aislinn. Who has been maybe his one ally in this entire castle. So that happens. So that's cool. Female character does something cool and immediately gets stabbed. Just immediate murder. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we go down to the secret passage that Iceland had snuck Kara out. And it's like, I don't know, like a cistern or something down there. It turns out that some of the villagers led by Hugh actually do join up. They're like, we're going to go open the gates. We're going to wait outside. Go save your dragon. <laughs> go save your dragon, Bowen. It's his dragon. It's his dragon. They belong to each other. Yes. Kara leads them up the only secret passage entrance she knows that goes direct into Einan's room. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they seem to have forgotten that it goes directly to Aynan's bedroom because they're completely shocked to see that Aynan is there. Like, lounging on his bed. <laughs> like, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> oh look, you brought me my bride and a priest to wed us. Gross. And Bowen's like, she's gay, dude. Leave it alone. She's just not into you. Aynan and Bowen end up having a sword fight. Gilbert kind of wanders in and out of the rest of the movie, but doesn't really do anything. <laughs> Kara ends up killing some dudes again. Yes, it's very good. While Bowen and Aynan are sword fighting in the aqueduct, Kara goes to find the dragon, ends up running into that dead dragon slayer who dropped his axe, picks it up, and oh look, it's Brock. Brock's here, you guys. Brock is not going to be here in this movie for more than five more seconds because Kara just freaking wrecks him. <laughs> it's really great because Brock looks at this small woman holding a very large axe and goes, oh, let me cut it down to size for you. 
and it cuts the haft in half. And Kara's immediately like, oh, thanks, bro. And murders him with the axe right through the gut. Brock dies just being like, a girl. Fuck yeah. A girl. What did you think was going to happen? You made it easier for her to just directly throw it at you, my dude. Anyway, Brock and Iden have now fought their way up to the scaffolding on the ramparts right above Draco. And there's like a whole thing where Iden gets like knocked off a tower and falls through the floor back into the sewer. He's fine. He'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, Bowen has to fight a couple more of the dragon slayers just because the movie feels the need to account for where all the dragon slayers are, I guess. I mean, Draco does light one of them on fire. Yes, one of them does get lit on fire. One of them gets a big heavy thing of rocks dropped on his head. And I think we lost track of the fifth one. (laughs) I I think we did. I don't know that he's in the rest of this movie. (laughs) The important thing is all the dragon slayers that we remember are dead. Yes. Bowen starts getting the chains off of Draco and then Draco starts begging for death. Yeah, Draco's got to start to be like, hey, dude, you got to kill me or Einan's going to live forever because we share a heart, but I've got the life source. So if you want to kill Einan, you've got to kill me. Bowen refuses. Draco keeps insisting. Bowen's like, but you're the last. And he says, my time is over. Strike. You are my friend. Then as my friend, strike. Please. Bowen's refusing to kill this dragon and it's all very emotional and there's no music or otherwise sound effects whatsoever, which makes it all that more impactful. Bowen is clearly starting to cry. Draco's like, fine, if you won't, then I'll make you and tries to white fang Bowen. (laughs) And Bowen just stands there as Draco breathes fire at him around him because he trusts his boyfriend. Ah. He throws away the axe. He refuses. He will not kill the man he loves, the beast he loves. The dragon he loves. The dragon he loves. The dragon whose heart he's captured. The fact that this doesn't end with that stardust style, no one can live forever except he who possesses the heart of a star. The fact that the movie doesn't end that way (laughs) is an injustice. In my version of the movie, that's how this ends. Meanwhile... Aynan is back in this movie, and because Kara is still in this movie, grabs her by the hair and puts a knife to her throat. Again. (sighs) This is like the seventh time this has happened. Yeah, but the good news is is that Kara actually pretty effectively gets out of this hold. It's true. She's like, hey, f*** off. Draco also helps out with this because he just, like, injures his own hand because they have that sympathetic injury link. Draco yanks on a chain around his wrist, which hurts Aynan's hand, which allows Kara to get out of the hold. And Aynan... Instead of grabbing Kara again, just goes straight for Bowen with a knife. Bowen looks at Draco. Draco lifts the scales over his heart. All Bowen and the audience can hear is Draco's heartbeat. This goes on for like an inordinately long time, by the way. Bowen and Draco happens in real time. Einan is running at them in like incredible slow motion. Because when you're just looking at your true love, time just stops. (laughs) And then Bowen throws an axe into Draco's heart. Einan falls, Draco dies a little slower, Bowen is in shock. His eyes are only for Draco as he collapses next to this dragon. As all the rest of the peasants run in and go, oh, fuck, what happened here? Oh, whoops, we're all set to do like a siege thing, but, uh, ooh. The movie remembers that Brother Gilbert exists. (laughs) He's just been gone. He's just kind of here, reacting to things. Draco dies, and Bowen, who is weeping at this point, is like, What now, Draco? Without you, what do we do? 
Where do we turn? What do I do? Where do I turn? The music starts up again and I start crying. Because Draco's body dissolves into a glowing mist. As Sean Connery starts talking, Dennis Quaid reaches up and touches his cheek like Draco is tenderly running the back of one claw along his face. He has absolutely just been kissed tenderly on that cheek. Draco's voice whispers the answer to the question, where do we turn? And he says, to the stars, Bowen. To the stars. Oh, God. Guys, I might start crying. <laughs> I had breakfast. I tried to hold it off. And the music goes and the music crescendos as Draco's soul ascends into the sky and is accepted by the other stars in the Draco constellation. And I am weeping at this point. And, like, the stars all gather, cluster around him, and then there's this huge burst of light, and the stars slowly resituate into that, and the star that is Draco's, this golden star, glimmers in the constellation. As we get some clumsy voiceover from Pete Postlewaite explaining that, oh, it was now a golden age for the kingdom. Karen Bowen led the nation as grieving dragon widow and lesbian. <laughs> as gay best friends. Yes. And when things became more difficult, Draco's star shone more brightly for those of us who knew where to look. And then it goes to the credits, which is more sad music, and I cry some more. And then at the end of the credits, they encourage you to play the Dragonheart video game. Oof! Which is available on the Sega Saturn. Oof! And that's Dragonheart. <laughs> that's Dragonheart, you guys. Except for when they made four more of them. But it's fine. <laughs> There's four more of them. I'm probably going to have to, like, commandeer the podcast to talk about them at some point, as well as this novelization I've just started. Yeah, I feel like we could just have an entire Dragonheart follow-up. I'm not watching those sequels. I'm going to tell you that now. No, you don't have to. First off, you'd have to pay money for them now. Oof, no, not happening. Second off, Rio and I, like, just binge them all over the course of a weekend and also snuck a Knight's Tale in the middle there as a palate cleanser. It was a weekend full of questionable decisions in terms of film. A Knight's Tale was not among them, nor was the original Dragonheart, but the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, as much as I dunk on Dragonheart, I really do love this movie. And honestly, if there's anyone who doesn't like this movie, at least a little bit, I'm always very suspicious of them. Speaking of which, hi, Mac. Sorry. Hi. Sorry, Mac. It's okay. H how are you? I'm fine. You watched this movie for the first time. What did you think, minus all of the nostalgia that Kit and I have? I was really bored, guys. Oh, no! <laughs> the first time I was like, oh, well, it's because I was working the whole day and I was pissed at working. But then I watched it again last night and I was like, this movie is just irrevocably boring for me. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Not even the stargazing scene worked for you? No, not really. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> By then, I was completely zoned out. <laughs> I mean, you did have a very compelling dating sim to play. I did. Doolahan Boy is the best boy. It's facts. Whatever. I watch Garzy's Wing for you guys. <laughs> I know. Hey, 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 hey. I had to pretend to be generous about freaking Ella Enchanted. It's Okay. <laughs> That's Dragonheart. You know what? It's not a very good movie, but I also love it. And that might just be because I'm very particular about dragons and media because part of me is still eight years old. <laughs> I just really like Sean Connery. I watched Hunt for Red October last weekend and Dragonheart this weekend. I think I'm on a Sean Connery kick. Ooh, ooh, that's a good twofer. Yeah, that's a real good twofer. He's great in Hunt for Red October. I just recently remembered that Hunt for Red October whips ass, so... Yeah, dude. It's like the only Jack Ryan movie I like. 
Jack Ryan's also like a huge Mary Sue there. Yeah. His only fault is that people don't believe him fast enough. But Sean Connery, though. Sean Connery steadfastly refusing to do a Russian accent. (laughs) You do not hire Sean Connery to do a Russian accent. You hire Sean Connery to sound like Sean Connery. It's like in f***ing Highlander when he's playing a Spaniard who's actually an Egyptian and he's speaking in a Scottish accent. He's like, I don't give a f***. You didn't hire me to pretend to do a Spanish accent. You hired me to be Sean Connery. If we haven't convinced you that this is a romance movie between a man and a dragon, I don't know what you're even doing here at this point. (laughs) You should have tapped out an hour ago. (laughs) They love each other so much. They're so in love. It is the tragic love story of our time. Every single other Dragonheart movie is about, like, a farm boy who wants to be a knight and his dragon best friend. None of them actually seem to pick up on the fact that the main character should be kissing. Your target demographic for these things is not young cis white boys. It has never been young cis white boys. But if you make movies for girls, you don't get the budget necessary for CGI dragons, so... (sighs) But that also means that it's time for our final facts, and Mac, thank you for suffering through this with us. What's your (laughs) final fact? My final fact is even if you don't enjoy something, if your friends do, it's actually really fun to listen to them talk about it. (laughs) Aww, thank you. Jeez. Annie, what's your final fact? My final fact is I have always been this bitch, and it's probably Dragonheart's fault. What's your final fact? My final fact is if anyone's got that like dragon heart hat from the swag bag back in the day and you're willing to send it to me, please do. I want that hat. Kit's got a P.O. box. I got a P.O. box. Join us next time when we're going to talk about something that, well, we actually have two facts for, and this is all going to be new to Kit. This is something me and Mac are experts in. We're going to be talking about the movie Alpha and Omega, which is a movie about wolves. With emo hair. And we have two facts here. One, Alpha and Omega is a movie that writes its own fan fiction. And two, Richard Rich must be stopped part the seventh. (laughs) Stop the insanity. Go Go organic. organic. You'll understand that later. Well, you won't understand it ever. But you'll have context for it. Oh, sh**. I just found the Dragonheart hat on eBay. (laughs) It's $25 US, you guys. I will buy you that hat. Buy it out of the Patreon fund? Yes! The Patreon fund is for paying people to edit our podcasts and for buying Dragonheart hats. <laughs> Speaking of which, I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. It is edited by Lucas Brown of the Math of You podcast. He does a great job. You should go check out his own podcast, which is super fun. We've all been on it. If you would like to talk to us about our own podcast, you can do that at CRC Podcasts on Twitter. You can also check out our website, crookedrussiancam.horse for links to both this and our other projects like Gem Jammer and Date Me Damn It, which are both excellent things. They're made specifically for me that my friends tolerate. (laughs) (laughs) Our stuff's good, and you should go listen to it and watch it. And again, that is at our website, crookedrussiancam.horse. If you want to give us money because you like the things that we do, you can do that at patreon.com slash thegemjam, where for at least a dollar a month, you can get weekly to fortnightly stuff from us. I think it's fun. Please give us money. (laughs) (laughs) Give us the dollars, please. You cannot teach me to promote myself, goddammit. I will never be good at it. Just like you can't teach me what our podcasts are about. (laughs) Hello, we're very gay. We'd like a few dollars. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it boils down to. Annie's going to buy me the Dragonheart hat, so I don't need to ask any of you guys to do it. So, you know, disregard that fact. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to 
I'm going to end up with like a P.O. box full of Dragonheart hats is what's going to happen. Are you complaining? No. <laughs> Maybe you can resize one to fit Pam. <gasps> we can have matching Dragonheart hats. Matching hats. Anyway, join us next time when we talk about a really terrible cartoon wolf movie. <laughs> and draw a direct line from the Swan Princess to the terrible cartoon wolf movie. That's right. It's our recurring nemesis, Richard Rich. <laughs> Enemy of the show, Richard Rich. (laughs) So until next time, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Dragon